Today we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And if you're looking for it in the Blue Pew Bibles, that is on page 976. So here is Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, as we continue in our series looking at being called to be a blessing to the nations. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. Please have a seat. Do you join me in prayer before we come to this passage? Father in heaven, we read this passage and we know that nearly every person in this room, if not every person in the room, is the direct beneficiary of what's being talked about here. That we are those uh, who were far off. Uh, that we are those who have been brought near. Um, and it's an amazing thing. And it's, it's a passage that's so rich and so full that it's almost one of those that we could just simply read and move straight to the benediction. Um, but Father, we are grateful to be able to sit here under your word uh, and to be changed uh, by it. Um, Father, we are a people um, who need to hear these promises. We need to hear that we are not those who don't have hope uh, in the world. Um, because Father, you know um, of the, the cares and the concerns that we carry about uh, in our hearts and our souls every day. Father, you know the things um, that we um, almost fear to hold out hope for. Um, it's not hard to, to tell after a few weeks of, of, of being together as a people, praying together, that, that many of the cares and concerns we have are for those um, who are um, 
in another place who are, who are far from us, those that we love and have been among us, um, but who now are, are, are further away and we can't see them every day. And we, and, and, and we know more um, tangibly and viscerally that they are, that they are out of our control uh, if they ever were. Um, Father, we lift up to you uh, the students that have, have recently graduated high school. Uh, we lift up again Megan uh, and Ainsley uh, as they are beginning college now. And, and, and we're grateful to be able to continue uh, to pray for others who have graduated over these, these past years. Um, Father, we are grateful um, that as we see children grow up in our midst um, and then graduate um, and, and leave this place, that, that, we can, um, that we can put them in your hands, that we can pray for them, um, that we can lift them up to you day by day and, and week by week, and that we can do it as a people. Um, that we can even now keep fulfilling those oaths that we all made when, when these kids were baptized. And pray on the basis of that baptism, on the basis of your promises, which are the only solid foundation for any of our hope whatsoever, that we can pray um, that you would hold them close, that you would care for them, that you would give them what they need. Father, as we've gone through this series this whole summer, um, I, I have been struck, and particularly as we've turned the corner into the New Testament, um, it's, it's, it's very common for us to think about Israel, uh, the, the, the Old Testament um, people of, uh, of, of Israel as being those who were called to be a blessing to the nations and refused to do it, um, and, and, who, and who turned away. But as we turn into the New Testament, um, we see that the people aren't that different. We see that it's just as difficult, it's just as challenging. Um, and Father, we also, if we're honest with ourselves, we see as we look at your people in the Old and the New Testament, we see that we are not that different from them. That, that as we often confess, we also tend to stay wrapped in our own concerns and turn away from neighbors in need. Um, but Father, if we see that we're not that different from your people, um, we also know uh, that you are no different than you were uh, with them, that your grace is in no way diminished, um, that your character is in no way changed. You are, you are the same God who called his people to be a blessing to the nations in the first place, and you are the same God who ensured that the nations were blessed even when your people chose to run in the opposite direction. And you are the same God uh, whose word and whose spirit turned the early church um, outward, moved them outward uh, to the Gentiles. And you are the same God whose word and spirit are active today. Um, and that is why we're here. Uh, we are only here because it is by your word uh, and by the power of your spirit that we can be changed and made more like you. That, that, is, that is our hope. That is what we're praying for. Um, as, we, as we look at your word now. And so I pray, as, as I always do, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so we are nearly at the end of this series, uh, looking at God's call to be a blessing to the nations, that we have traced through every genre of the Old Testament, 
Uh, and now we've moved into the New Testament, and we've seen it show up again in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. This week we're looking at one of Paul's letters. Um, and next week Bradley will finish this series looking at the book of Revelation, where it's all going. Um, this week, and, and, and I think next week, I don't want to... I don't want to constrain Bradley in his preaching next week because we haven't had a chance to talk about this, but this week and next week, we really seem to be looking at the goal. Like, what is, what is the point of this? What is the goal of this calling that God has given uh, to his people? Um, we, we've talked a bit about what it means, like who the nations are. Who are these others? Who are the strangers? Who are the outsiders um, that we are called to be a blessing to? We haven't talked as much about what is the blessing, like what, what is this blessing that God wants to shed abroad? Uh, what is this blessing that he said? It would be too small a thing for this to be just for Israel, just for the house of Jacob. Um, it needs to go out. It needs to go to the, the nations. Um, so I want to talk a bit about that uh, today because I think we see uh, quite a bit of that here in this, in this passage. Let me actually back up even further Let's ask the question, so, so when you see the word blessing in the scripture, right, God blessed Abraham, what does that mean? What does it mean that God blessed uh, his creation, that it, it, he blessed uh, Adam and Eve uh, at, at creation? Um, so my favorite Old Testament scholar is this, is this guy, Bruce Waltke, um, he used to teach at Regent College, he was at, he was at RTS, he's written a really fantastic Old Testament theology. Um, the way he lays this out, he says, when, when God blesses someone, okay, so this is only when God is the subject. When God blesses, what it means is he gives them everything that they need to reach their, their appointed end. He, he, he's, he's giving them everything that they need to get to where they're supposed to go, to be what they were made to be. Um, so he blesses his creation, and says, be fruitful and multiply. And he's giving it everything it needs to do just that. He, he blesses Adam and Eve, and again says, be fruitful and multiply, and subdue the earth, right? Um, and he's giving them everything that they need uh, to reach that, that appointed end. Um, and then, interestingly, when, when the Old Testament talks about curse, it's just the opposite, okay? So if blessing means giving everything necessary to reach the appointed end. Curse means having that end be frustrated, having the purpose be frustrated and, and hindered, right? So when God, after the fall, says that the serpent is cursed, that Satan is cursed, what he's saying is, you are not going to do what you were intending to do. I am frustrating your plans. You planned to redraw the lines of friendship. Right? You, you plan to convince this man and woman that you're their friend and I'm their enemy, right? that I was being stingy and withholding from them, um, and I'm not going to let you do it. He specifically says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and, and, and her offspring will crush your head. I'm frustrating your purposes. So this gives you a sense of what blessing and curse are. Now, if blessing means ensuring that someone is going to reach their appropriate end, then we next have to, have to ask, so then, what is our end? What is our purpose, right? What are we made for? Um, well, if you've been in a Reformed church, 
for very long, PCA, OPC, any of these other, any of these other denominations that, that, that tend to look at the Westminster uh, Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know we actually have an answer to that question. Um, what is the chief end of man? It's question number one in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The answer, of course, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, that might leave you scratching your head, though. Like, what, is, what does that mean, to glorify God, to enjoy him? Well, it turns out Jesus himself gives us some very specific answers to these questions um, about what our purpose is, what we are made for, um, especially uh, in, in John 17. So we've been preaching through John in the springs, and we haven't gotten to chapter 17 yet. But John 17 is this um, kind of pinnacle moment in Scripture where we get to eavesdrop on a conversation between the Son and the Father. We get to see Jesus praying what's called the high priestly prayer. Um, and he says two things that I want to highlight in, in, that, in that 17th chapter that tell us a lot about what our purpose is, what we are made for, um, what is our end. Firstly, in the third verse, John 17, 3, he says um, to the Father, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, knowledge of God. And it's a knowledge that is not just a knowledge about, but an intimate, relational kind of knowledge. But then the second thing, he goes deeper, and he talks about unity. Here's what he says. Um, and this will almost make your head swim. He says, the glory that you have given me, this is around verse 21 or 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This, this speaks even more to the intimacy um, of this knowledge of God, that it's not just knowledge about, but it's, it's, it's the kind of knowledge that brings unity, unity of us with our creator and unity of us with one another um, as, as one body. Um, this is something that scripture talks about as being a mystery, right? A great mystery. Paul specifically talks about this being a, a, a mystery. And when he says that it's a mystery, you need to understand, um, he's not talking about a mystery the way you or I talk about a mystery novel. Um, last week I made a really brief reference to this TV show called Only Murders in the Building, and I saw a look go over some of your face that I interpreted as, please don't spoil it, right? Just don't, just stop talking right? Um, it's a mystery show. I'm not going to spoil it. Don't worry. Why would I not spoil it? Because half the fun of watching a mystery show is seeing if you can figure it out on your own, right? You trace the clues. You try to figure out, you know, what's, what's, what's going on. That's how we think about the word mystery. It's a problem that we could solve. That's not what Paul means when he says that this kind of unity between God and his people and among God's people is a mystery, He's talking about something. It's not something that we can figure out and comprehend. It's almost the opposite. It's something that is so vast and so marvelous that the deeper we go into it, the more there is. And almost the more incomprehensible it becomes, the harder it gets to get our minds around it. 
Um, we talk about mysteries being things that we don't so much understand or comprehend as we, we confess and we adore. And that's how Paul uh, talks about this. Um, I want to pause here and just make sure that you understand what Jesus is saying when he talks about this being our end. And when he talks in this language um, where he says, they may be one even as we are one. He's saying that the depth of the love that God has for us is the same, is comparable to the depth of the love that exists among the members of the Trinity. Can we understand that? No. That is not something we can get our heads around. Um, and what that means is that there will never come a point in your life where you can say that God's love for me has run out. There will never come a point in your life where you can say, look, God has been good to me to this point. He's been gracious to me. He's loved me well, but, but that's it. I've run up against the limit. The more you lean on his love, the deeper you try to plumb its depths, the more of it you will find. It is incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible the way the Trinity is incomprehensible. Okay, so with that bit of a digression uh, for, for, our, for, for an introduction uh, to this passage. Um, this passage speaks a lot about unity. Um, if our if this blessing that we're supposed to be about is ultimately to know God, to be united to him and to each other, then what would the flip side of that be, right? What would the curse look like? Oh, it would look like estrangement, right? It would look like division. Um, it would look like alienation. And I think that that, and, 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 if, if unity with God is what we're most made for, then estrangement from him would be something that we would experience um, on an existential level, right? It would be something inescapable. And I think that's something that most people can identify with, whether they, whether they acknowledge the God of the Bible or not, um, whether they claim Christianity or some other faith or no faith at all. Most people these days walk around carrying some degree of existential angst, right? Estrangement alienation. Um, the most recent example I could find came from this book uh, that, was, that was written, or that was published this summer called Quarter Life, Quarter Life. Um, so not midlife, but quarter life. Um, it's written by a therapist who mostly works with young people between their teens and kind of early 30s. And what she said in the introduction to this book, she says, crippling anxiety, depression, anguish, and disorientation have become the norm for the people who walk in through her door. Um, that's become the norm. That's just the most recent example um, that, that I could find. What the Bible would say, what Paul would say, is that at the root of that existential alienation and estrangement is estrangement from our creator. What the Bible would say is that the problem is that because we've turned away from him, because we've sinned, because we've rebelled against our creator, um, 
all of our relationships have been broken. We are alienated by that from God. And as a result, we are also alienated from one another. We're alienated from ourselves. We're alienated from the creation itself. But it all stems from this root uh, that we are alienated uh, from, from the creator. Some of the early church fathers um, were uh, really emphatic that, that this is the nature of the curse, that the curse had this effect of breaking apart all of these relationships. Um, and, and, and breaking apart the relationship between humans and, and other humans. And if that was the case, um, they were convinced that salvation had to involve a restoration of that unity. Um, here's, here's Augustine on this. Um, this is a little bit of a, of a longer quote, um, but I want to read the whole thing because of the way he ends on this note of hope that I want you to hear. Um, here's what he says. This is from his commentary on the Psalms. He says... Set in one place, Adam fell, and as it were, so he's speaking figuratively, as it were, broken small, he has filled the whole world. But the divine mercy gathers up the fragments from every side, forged them in the fire of love, and welded into one what had been broken. That was a work which this artist knew how to do. Let no one therefore give way to despair." An immense task it was indeed, but think who the artist was. He who were made was himself the maker. He who refashioned was himself the fashioner. This is a major theme of, of the New Testament. And I, I want you to notice how significant this theme um, of, of unity that Paul talks about in, um, in verses 11 to, to 22, um, how significant this is in the, in the scope of the book, right? Um, you probably know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 um, is a really significant passage. It is about as clear an exposition of the gospel um, as you can get. Um, it starts off by describing the predicament that we were in in really strong language, right? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. But then at verse 4, we get the two most important words in the entire Bible, but God. Right? You were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And then verses 8 through 10, we get, we get these verses that a lot of us have memorized, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, these verses are such a nice, clear articulation of, of the gospel that... It, it's very common um, when, when uh, candidates are being examined uh, to be elders, to be deacons, to be pastors um, in our denomination. A uh, really common exam question is, if you had to take people to one passage to explain the gospel, where would you take them? And, and this is one of the most common answers. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So really clear articulation um, of, of the gospel. Um, and then... The first thing that Paul has to say after that, 
the first thing is what he says here about the unity of the body, about the unity that breaks down the dividing wall of ethnic division between Jew and Gentile. It's the first thing that he has to say. And it's not just the first thing that he has to say, like, like he's just kind of randomly picking at things, because um, he links it with a therefore, right? So it's the first implication. It's the first implication of the gospel. You could almost summarize Ephesians 2, 1 through 22 by just saying, if the gospel is true, then unity. That's a really short summary. If gospel, then unity. Um, we've only got about 10 minutes left. And with the time that we have left, what I want to do is look at how Paul lays this out. It's such an important idea. Um, you know what he does? Um, he gives us an illustration. Um, so this is, this, is, this, is, this is a common preacher thing, right? Is that if you've got a really complicated idea that you want to convey, you come up with an illustration. Um, this is not something that I'm good at. Um, I know that. Um, I'm not very good at sermon illustrations. I will happily accept your favorite sermon illustrations. My email is in the bulletin. Um, if you want to just share them with me, I'll work them in, I promise. Um, it's not something that I'm good at, but a lot of preachers uh, are really good at using illustrations to make complicated subjects uh, more simple. And Paul thinks that this topic is so important that he gives us not just one, he actually gives us four. He gives us four different illustrations, four metaphors. And when I say metaphor, I, I want you to understand that um, he's using metaphors, but this isn't the kind of metaphor where you say, well, that's only figuratively true. Um, these metaphors are, in, in, in some sense, more real. Um, these are the reality that he's describing. Here's, here's, the, here's the four metaphors, and we'll look at each of these uh, briefly. Um, he says that our unity, um, that the unity of the body is as if we are one people, or one nation, one people, one body, one household, one temple. He says, remember at the beginning, so one nation, first of all, one nation, one people. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Um, the main thing that he's thinking about that makes a people a people is this covenant. Um, and there's this really interesting play on words um, that, he, that he brings into play when he, when he talks about how you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Because you might know that the Old Testament language for making a covenant was you would cut a covenant, right? You would cut a covenant. And then the attendant, you know, the curse, the worst thing that could happen to you would be for you to be cut off, to be cut out of the covenant. Um, you might remember this scene in, in Genesis um, that illustrates this really vividly, this idea of cutting a covenant. Um, so in Genesis 15, God reiterates his, problems, uh, his, his promises, not his problems, his promises to Abraham and Abraham believes them, and it says that that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. 
which is a really big deal in a whole other sermon. Um, but what happens next is that God says, okay, Abraham, what I want you to do, go get these animals, cut them in half, and lay the pieces out. And what's, what's happening here is that this was actually a common covenant-making ceremony. This is what people would do. Um, you'd, you'd cut these animals in half, you'd lay out the pieces, and the two parties of the covenant would walk arm in arm between the pieces, right? So as to signify, so as to say, if I ever break this covenant, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. Um, this is very different. I don't know what your contract negotiations were like at work. Um, this would kind of stick in your head, right? Um, in Genesis 15, something weird happens, which is that once the animals are laid out, God puts Abraham to sleep. And then he, and he alone, passes through those pieces by himself. So as to signify, if this covenant ever gets broken, I am going to bear the penalty myself. I alone am going to do that. And what Paul is saying is that here, because it says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul is saying God has been faithful to that promise. The covenant was broken. And it's by the blood of Christ that you have been healed. He did what he said he would do. And now he has made you one people in the covenant. Um, that's one people. One body. He, Paul goes on to say, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Um, I read this week, as I was studying for this, um, there's a New Testament scholar named William Barclay who explained, we, we have a really hard time understanding the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. One of the things that he said, he said, the barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. That's hostility. Um, we have a hard time uh, getting, getting our minds ar around that. Um, where Paul says that God has broken down the dividing wall, he's, he's, he's calling to mind a very specific image that, that embodied this hostility, and it was the wall that went around the temple with the court of the Gentiles on one side and only Jews accepted uh, inside. Um, this wall was four and a half feet tall. It was a four and a half foot tall stone wall, which you think about that, that height, that's about, that's tall enough where you can't jump over that. It'll keep you out, but it's not quite high enough where you can't see what you're missing, right? You can see what's on the other side. And we, we have actually found pieces of this thing that have inscriptions on them. Uh, one of them was found in, in 1935. It's written in Greek, so they could read it, that said, no foreigner may enter within the barrier an enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame 
for his ensuing death. And now Paul is saying that in Christ, that has been leveled. That has been broken down. And that we have actually been made as one body. This is one of Paul's favorite images, right? He's going to return to this one body language in Ephesians 4. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Um, Again, a big topic, but suffice it to say that to say that Jew and Gentile, um, that people of every tongue, tribe, and nation have been made as one body is to say that we should care for each other the way we care for ourselves. Um, It is marital language. It is one flesh language. Um, It is a way of, of emphasizing uh, the second great commandment, that we should love others as we love ourselves. that if one member of the body is hurting, whoever they are, we should care for them the way you would care for your own elbow or big toe if it was in, if it was in pain. This is, what, this is what Paul says has been done in Christ's, in Christ's flesh, uh, in his body. Um, we are made one household, right? We formerly were aliens and strangers, right? At verse 18, uh, it says, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It means we are all fellow citizens, but more than that, members of one household, members of one family. Um, Ancient households were kind of these like little city-states unto themselves where everybody had a role. Um, Everybody was essential. To say that we are members of one household is to say that if any one of us is missing, we all are diminished. Finally, he says we're one temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Our call to worship today was from Psalm 107. Remember it said, some wandered in desert wastes. Um, Israel spent a lot of time wandering before they could be settled and established enough to build a temple. Remember David wanted to do this. He wanted to replace that mobile tent that was rotting. And God said, you're not going to do this. But he didn't say it's a bad idea. Um, Solomon built that temple. And it was a big deal. It was a big deal to have a solid, established place. It meant that there was rest. It meant that they were where they were supposed to be. And it, and it speaks, again, to the end, to the purpose of all things. Because what we see in Scripture, throughout it all, is that God's chief purpose, if our chief end is to worship him, and enjoy him forever. His chief end is to be a God who dwells with his people. And what Paul is saying here is that in the end, that place where he dwells is us. That place where he dwells is his people. That we are united and being built into that that temple. Listen, what what I love about Paul's four sermon illustrations. I said earlier, I think most of us experience some degree of 
estrangement, right? But we don't all experience it in the same way. Um, and what these four metaphors do give you four different ways of understanding what God has done. So let me ask you, how, how do you experience the estrangement? How do you experience alienation? Do you primarily experience the chaos, right? The disorder, the sense that things are falling apart. The center doesn't hold. Well, if so, you are invited into a nation, into a covenant people, ruled by God, who brings true peace. Or, or is, it, is it the hostility, right? Is it the hostility um, between men and, and, and women, between brothers, between sisters, across races, right? Across religions, like all these different forms of, of hostility that we experience. We are invited, then, to be a member of a body in which the specific ways that God has gifted every one of us very, very differently from each other are all vital, are all essential. Is it exile? Is it a sense that you're not home? Well, God has invited you into his household. He says, welcome home. I've made this for you. Or is it your sense that you're wandering through the wilderness, wandering in, in desert wastes? If that's you, then I get to remind you that this table that we're coming to now is a table that God has spread for us in the midst of the wilderness, that God has opened up a place uh, for us, a foretaste of the true feast, the true wedding feast of the Lamb, that is, that is coming, that, that even now uh, we get to experience what it's like uh, to be home, to be in his presence, to be where we are most made to be. Um, listen, before we come to this table, uh, let's pray and let's give thanks.